Hey there. Thank you for joining us for Six Degrees of Study, an uneducational podcast. Today we have Sophie Nichols, who is a speech pathologist in Tari and studied a Bachelor of Arts at Newcastle University, an Honours and PhD at University of New England, and a Masters of Speech Pathology at Charles Sturt University. We want to show you how it's highly likely there's only six degrees of separation between you, the career, and the life you want. This is the Six Degrees Podcast. Hello, Sophie. Hi, Donna. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. I feel that introduction saying it's uneducational is really not appropriate in your case when you've done so much education. (laughs) But we will get to that because I guess we're not here to educate people. We're just here to have a conversation and talk about people in our local area that have really used their degrees to do interesting things. And I know a little bit about your history, but I'm really keen to learn a bit more. Um, Tell us first off where you're working at the moment. What, What is life for Sophie right now? What are you doing? At the moment I uh, live in Halliday's Point with my husband and our three children and I work in Tari as a speech pathologist a few days a week. Um, Working as a speech pathologist is fantastic because there's a lot of flexibility and I get the um, time to be with my children um, on weekends and holidays. Yeah, Sounds like a nice job. Yeah, I love (laughs) it. So how long have you been here in the area? Have you recently returned or have you... I I just hear this story a lot about people that move away and then they come back. So I'm keen to know if you're one of those returners. Yeah, absolutely I am. I grew up here in the area and went to Wingham High School. Um, And then I left and went to university in Newcastle. And I guess I was away for quite a while. And then when I got married, I came back again with my husband for a little while and worked here. Um, but then we got, I ended up getting work in Sydney and we moved back to Sydney. Uh, and then five years ago, we bought a house and moved back here for good. Yeah, nice move. And lots of people are doing that. So the other thing we like to talk about in these podcasts is I think people often think it's a straight move from high school to uni to the job. And I would say 95% of the people that we've talked to haven't done that. So have you done that typical path? Were you always going to be a speech pathologist? Is that what your vision was? Actually, yes, it was. But when I finished year 12 um, at high school at Wingham, I didn't get anywhere near the marks I needed to get into speech pathology, which was something like a 98 or among very high. Um, Instead, I got into (laughs) chemical engineering. Wow. Just the same kind of thing, really, of course. <laughs> no, it was because I had an excellent uh, chemistry teacher in high school that I loved. And I thought, oh, I just love chemistry. I'll keep doing this. But as soon as I enrolled in the chemical engineering degree, I did the first semester and then did a bit of linguistics and a bit more languages and ended up doing my whole Bachelor of Arts in linguistics. Mm-hmm. So, so again, uh, it's okay to change your mind oh, along the way. I changed my mind so many times. And in the end, I found something that I absolutely loved, which was languages and linguistics and communication. And I guess I've built off that ever since then. And I think that started actually when I was in high school and I was an exchange student to Costa Rica for a year, um, which was pretty amazing, going to Wingham High and then suddenly going to Wingham, I mean, to Costa Rica. <laughs> I spent 12 months there and then came back and finished high school. And I think that really gave me a sense of, wow, yeah. so much out there what to explore. F- fabulous place to go to. I, can, I don't know, it just feels like colour and noise, Costa Rica. Oh, it, was. <laughs> it was just incredible. And I really experienced what it's like to not speak the dominant language, not understand the cultural customs, 
not fit in at high school, not know how to do anything. And I think that really set the scene for my education and my professional career for the rest of my life, even though I kind of went around it in funny ways. But I ended up studying linguistics for my Bachelor of Arts. And then towards the end of my Bachelor of Arts, I went to a conference in linguistics. And I met a professor there from University of New England. And he said, oh, have you considered doing honours? How about we do this exciting project? And I was so excited by that. I I didn't even think of the job consequences. I just thought, yeah, I'll I'll try this. So I went to Armadale and um, did my honours. And I loved it. Um, so after that, when they offered me a PhD to study Aboriginal languages in Southeast Arnhem Land in Northern Territory, it just felt like this amazing adventure. And I couldn't believe that I was lucky enough um, to get to do that. So, yeah, that was the next kind of six years. That sounds amazing. And I'm sure that opportunity only came your way because of incredible results or something. That doesn't sound like that door <laughs> opens for everybody. So are you being a little bit reserved about how well you went at uni? Like I, that? I did get a university medal for my honours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, which was a surprise to me. I mean, I did well in high school, but I, I certainly wasn't kind of top of everything or ducks. Um, but I just, when I found something that I really loved, of course, then it becomes much easier to really get absorbed in it and um that was that was it for me I loved linguistics and I and then I loved um my PhD in research and I worked as a postdoctoral fellow in Sydney um for a couple of years as an academic um but so so just just wind us back to Arnhem Land because that sounds intriguing so you've you've done your arts degree in Newcastle then you ended up going to Armidale to do your honours and just for, for linguistics, tell us a bit about that. Is that a stack of languages? You can speak 10 languages or something? What does that actually mean? Yeah, that's a great question. There's two meanings of the word linguist. A linguist can be either somebody that speaks a lot of languages or someone that studies the structures of languages. So mine was the study the structure of languages. Um, and so I was studying the structure of languages from uh, Arnhem Land in Australia Australian Aboriginal languages which are just incredible so the diversity of languages in Australia is something so special and we're so lucky to live here. Um, There was uh, opportunities to study that because of the researchers at University of New England and I knew that there were some researchers studying up there and they invited me to come along and introduce me to the local community so I get to I got to work there in the community doing language revitalization work in Arnhem Land. In Arnhem Land, yeah, in my early 20s, which was just, you know, a dream job at that stage. Yeah. So were you based in Arnhem Land living there or you were fly in fly out? What was the arrangements for that? I was living in a little um, in the language center which was a single room kind of like a donga uh, in in a remote community, Roper River Nooka is the name of the community. Uh, and my job description was to support language revitalization in the community. So, um, yeah, it was a lot of making tea uh, for elders and learning how to listen. And um, it was a lot of fun, a lot of adventures. And I, I felt so privileged to be there. And was there a team of people doing this research with you, or this was just Sophie on your own? It was just me. Yeah, wow. <laughs> 
I did have uh, supervision, which was excellent, from University of New England. And there were other linguists that worked in the region, but the base was in Catherine, some like 300 kilometres away. Yeah. So were you trying to record those languages to preserve them that way? Yeah. So really whatever the elders in the community wished... Um, some of it was recording stories and songs. Sometimes it was taking groups and children out to visit different sites. Um, it was uh, supporting creating orthographies like written alphabets, um, taking language into the local schools, um, whatever the elders wanted really. Yeah, that was my job. And have you seen the flow-on effects of that now? Are you able to stay in touch with that community at all? Yeah, I have um, and... It's amazing to see now how the language centre has flourished. Like So now Nuka has its own language centre um, and there's linguists working there and the community has, well, the community has just thrived. There's a lot of amazing yeah, stuff going on there with Creole, North Australian Creole language. Yeah, I just, I mean, I only know the slightest, slightest piece of information about Indigenous language, but I know there's so many different languages across Australia and there's so many that I guess haven't had that opportunity to really be recorded and captured and ensured that they have that continuity and succession down through the generations. I just, it's fantastic. And I, I mean, I'm so pleased that we've got Gatang language here really starting to be picked up by the community and, and recognised even, you know, there's people that know the, know some words, which is great. Yeah. Um, just think- general community people, I guess, knowing words, I mean... The Biripai community know it, of course, but it's really starting to filter into the community and I just love that. Like, The more that that can happen, of course, the yeah. more, more places the better. But you were right at the beginning of that then. That's fantastic, right at that start of really capturing language. Yeah, and in the end that was in Arnhem Land, of course, but um, my PhD was ironically on North Australian Creole, which is not a traditional Aboriginal language but a contemporary Aboriginal language, um, which is spoken by... 20 to 30,000 people in the Northern Territory across the top end um, and a very fast-growing language. Fantastic. Mm. Okay, so how long were you in Arnhem Land for? How long were you in that donga? <laughs> yeah, actually, when I think about it, it wasn't that long. I was there uh, for six months at a time and then I went came back. But my relationship with that community lasted well, until now, but really I was working there off and on for 10 years. Wow. Going up and coming back. Mm, brilliant. Okay, so after that, where did you find yourself? You've, you've done this wonderful research project with UNE, captured all these fantastic stories in language. What what next? <laughs> well, next was children. Right. <laughs> um, I, I had my two daughters around that time and I submitted my PhD, I think, a month before my daughter was born. Yeah, that's a good deadline to have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my husband is from Israel, so shortly after that we moved to Israel for him to, you know, for us to have a chance to live there because we'd been really following my schedule until then. Um, and when we moved back to Australia a couple of years later, I um, got a postdoctoral position at, at the University of Western Sydney for the um, Australian Research Council um, What's it called? The Centre for Excellence for the Dynamics of Language. Wow, that sounds oh, look, pretty amazing. It was so exciting. <laughs> and, and as part of that, I also got some work with the State Library of New South Wales doing indi- Indigenous language um, sort of community-based work, which was super exciting. Like, uh, that was a really exciting time in my life. Yeah, I loved it. Fantastic. 
So at what stage did you have your little stint back to the Manning Valley? That was I think it must have that. been, yeah, it was after when we moved back from Israel. Um, we came back here, uh, we lived in Tononi, I think, and then in Old Bar for about a year. And then we moved back to Sydney for me to work at that job. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And then you got the urge to study again. Well, then I was pregnant with my, our third child and we were living in Sydney and I suddenly had this urge to come back to the mid-north coast and it's so beautiful here and such a great lifestyle for children. So when I thought, saw that Charles Sturt University was offering a speech pathology degree online, I applied because I thought, this is 20 years in the making, this dream. Yeah. I was 38 by then. Um, and so, yeah, my son was three months old when I started the Masters of Speech Pathology. Fantastic. And then you didn't have to worry about having the 99.8 ATAR or whatever. Yes, thank up. goodness. <laughs> yeah. And why do you think the, the ATAR is so high? Like that, that's incredibly high. Is it just to try to control the number of people that want to study? I think it might be because it's uh, a degree that takes uh, not that many students at a time, possibly. So I think they were only accepting 40 or 50 students and I guess they just took the top 40 or 50 and, um, you know, all the great students were applying, so it got super high. Yeah. I just sometimes wonder whether those that are really going to care about speech pathology and relationships and community are the same kind of students that have 99.8. I'm not sure. Like, it just seems a funny correlation that it has to be on marks. So, to me, that's why that mature entry makes so much sense when you've actually know that you want to study in that space. Yes. Look, I was desperate to get into speech pathology. I did my – I applied again after I'd finished my honours degree um, and I didn't manage to get in then either. Um, And then, yeah, when I'd finished my PhD, I thought, surely now – I'll be able to get in. <laughs> and, and thank goodness they went, yes, that's enough. Yeah, you, thank goodness. <laughs> and then you've got to wonder why is there a shortage of speech pathologists? I like, know. <laughs> you know, now we just cannot get enough. Um, and definitely in our community here, you'd be highly sought after. Um, did you have lots of opportunities of work offerings when you returned? Oh, when I started looking for work, I realised... Probably I could have found a job five times over. There's such a high demand for speech pathology in this area and I think that makes it stressful for other speech pathologists because the waiting lists are long and the pressure is high and you, you really, you know, it's a caring profession. You really want to get to all those children or adults um, that need that support. Um, but without the other speech pathologists around, it's difficult Although I must say it's an amazing profession in that it's very, very supportive, very collegial um, and not at all competitive, which has been fantastic. Yeah, that's lovely. So do you find you get time to get support from other speeches or is it – I can just imagine that you're – I know you're saying that you're not working full-time, but the days that you do work must be long hours because you're trying to really support as many families and children as you can – yeah, I, I just, you know, you want to find time to connect with other people in your mm. line of work, right, so that you can actually It is a really difficult balance because I know other speech pathologists um, who, you know, like me, they've got a family and they've got their work uh, and it's kind of hard to find time between that for, you know, friends, let alone for professional development. Um, but I think there are some, you know, 
dinners occasionally or meetups and any speech pathologist that I've ever contacted has been so supportive and kind and really given me, you know, the time, um, you know, mentorship and support, which I think, you know, I couldn't have got this far, even though I've only been practising for a year, um, without all of that support. Mm. So... We're trying to get more people into speech pathology, right, to take the pressure off. Yes. What would you say to people that are out there considering doing it? Did, did you find the study difficult? Is it, a, is it a, a difficult course to do? I mean, you had, I guess you had incredible pathways in. You'd already understood a lot about linguistics, but... Mm. It is a hard degree mm-hmm. um, and I did it online and through COVID, which I guess a lot of people that are studying now have had to make that transition flipping around pivoting working out how to do it now and I did struggle at times I also had a little baby and two other children Mm. Um, but it was an amazing degree in that speech pathology and I think there's some other allied health like occupational therapy I know of that really teach you a new way of thinking and that's so exciting for me to do that at you know 40 years old to relearn a whole new way of thinking um, felt like a wonderful opportunity, especially since I had dedicated a lot of my life to research and critical thinking already. But this was something completely different, something I'd never even considered. Um, And it's something really wonderful because it's a very inclusive profession. It's really predicated on the idea that people can... um, support each other as a system and erase parts of disability by recognising um, how to support people. Mm. I know that we're probably just about to wrap up, but just I'd like for people that may not understand the role of a speech pathologist, um, I know that it's not all just about the spoken word either. Like I know from some work with disability, there's more to it than that. Can you kind of describe the the way that you help people? Yeah, fantastic. That's such a good question. A speech pathologist um, works with families and communities and and children and people um, across the lifespan, so from birth all the way to elderly people, um, to help them with communication needs and swallowing needs. So it can be anything to do with if somebody has had a stroke and they may have difficulty with communicating or they may have difficulty with eating and drinking or um, babies, young people, teenagers, adults, children, anyone that has communication difficulties. And that includes um, speech difficulties, voice difficulties, difficulties with language, understanding what people say, or um, difficulties with uh, knowing how to read and write, um, social communication, so understanding how other people communicate, In general, I think speech pathologists can be amazing advocates for communication needs of any group. Um, And and it seems to me just so important in that early early years of three to five, I guess, like before school, to get communication, any communication issues sorted so that then the pathway through school is so much easier if you've got communication. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That zero to five age group, and that's I work mainly with paediatric with children, um, is a really um, essential time. And most speech pathologists, well, I imagine all would kind of uh, jump to working with that 
group um, if they can to support them in those in those early intervention years if there's if there's concerns yeah well thank you this has been wonderful those minutes have flown by really quickly (laughs) it's my pleasure Thank you for um, sharing all of those exciting parts of your life and all the amazing research you've done and how you're now continuing to make such a difference in our community here. Thank you so much for moving back to here because I know there is such a demand for what you do and hopefully we can attract some more people to take up study and, and move into those areas of demand. Yes, thanks so much, Donna. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Six Degrees podcast. This podcast is produced by Upbound Business Consultants and is brought to you by Tari University's campus. Based on the New South Wales Barrington Coast, TUC is a hub for supporting distance education study for university students with campus facilities, mentoring, postgrad career opportunities and more. If you'd like to share your story, you can send us an email at podcast at tariuni.org.au and let us know your unconventional road to a degree. Until next time.